Welcome to Finding Your Epic. This is a show where senior level women share their epic moments, telling the story behind those light bulb experiences where they learned a powerful skill that shaped their career progression. Hosted by me, Jacqueline Frost, founder of Elevate Talent. Today, we are talking with Elizabeth Bradford. Elizabeth's banking career began 20 years ago, and she is also now an executive and well-being coach with a side hustle on cultural transformation. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Jacqueline. Happy to be here. Well, also, we met recently, didn't we? We only met last year, and I, and I remember you sharing something so powerful about yourself, and I was so interested about your approach to your career and how others noticed it and commented on it too. So do tell us how you acquired this skill. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. I don't know so much about acquired. I think I honed it over time without realizing. And it was quite a surprise to me, as you say, when it was pointed out to me. And it's now something that I try and weave into a lot of the coaching programs that I run, both within banking and then outside of banking. The skill itself is, in fact, collaboration. And it turns out the reason I hadn't really realized I'd been honing it over the years was I am very much wired for collaboration as opposed to competition, which being in banking and being senior in banking is actually quite rare. You do have a lot of A-types and a lot of very competitive people, but I do credit it once I look back and you notice the different pinch points or touch points in your career where you see where you've progressed and perhaps others have not. I do credit it for that reason in that we are moving into a much more collaborative era. So whether you consider it's because of stakeholder capitalism, whether you consider it's because of the way in which we work and the more we are creating inclusive cultures, there really isn't that room anymore for just out and out direct competition and much more collaboration. Completely agree with you. The competition style approach is very much to me a 20th century approach, isn't it? Whereas collaboration really is, we, this is a 21st century approach to to working, to to leadership, to everything really. So yeah, that's why it was so interesting because obviously, you, you know, you're, you're way ahead of the game with this. You've been doing this your whole career. <laughs> well, my whole life actually. So it didn't start with my career at all. And that's why I say it was an unconscious skill for a while, but it's now one that I do nurture. And that's because I actually grew up in a pretty large family. I grew up in a family of four children. And all of my siblings are Mensa IQ intelligent, and I am the one that is not. And I know this for a fact, and I say it with no shame because my mother had me tested multiple times. She really wanted the whole pack. The hat trick wasn't good enough for her. She wanted a full, full, full squad. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That sounds very traumatic. It really wasn't. She's a loving mother. But so I know for a fact, but once you've accepted that at a very early age, you start to really learn how to navigate when you're surrounded by people who are much smarter than you, but they're also very talented in different areas. So if I look back, I see that actually I learned at a fairly nascent age that I would get far further and we would get far further as a collective if we harnessed the talents of different people and then had a shared objective. And so I'd actually been unconsciously doing this probably from around the age of six or seven. And it's something that then meant, I believe, I didn't really build the same competitive neural pathways that a lot of people do as they're growing up. So you go into the school system, you go and play sports, all of that stuff, and people are really wired for competition and to be the alpha. 
And actually, for me, it was very much more a case of you'll have much greater outcomes and achieve much greater things if you're doing things as a group. But for me, it was very much subconscious. And it was only once it had been pointed out to me in the work environment. And it was originally pointed out to me more in a, oh, it's because you're female way. And I think that is quite a big stereotype that men are very competitive and women are very collaborative. But actually, I don't think it's gender specific. I think it's really just about how we train ourselves to respond to situations. And sometimes we have to go against the grain of what we grew up with. And, and other times that grain really supports us in it. I do agree with you there. I, I find that quite a frustrating part, actually, of what we do as a company, that our focus is on that mid-level female talent, that there is that stereotype that oh, women behave like this and men behave like that. And an awful lot of the research that we see will demonstrate, oh, this men have more than this than women, but all it really is the differential. So when you actually look to the detail and the big one that we see the most is on confidence and that there is this view out there that men are more confident than women. Well, first of all, if you look at, look at the research, all it is a differential, say 78% of men have responded a certain way compared to 72%. Well, that's only 6% of a difference. That's, that's not very big, is it really in the first place? But also the second question you have to ask is, is that, well, actually, how are you measuring this? Because if you're deciding something is a gender thing, then you're not measuring it properly, are you? They're looking at you and thinking, oh, that's because she's female. It's almost like it needs to be a reason. You know what I mean? Why they have to find a reason for it. You know, rather than think, oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> that's a great way to get things done. It's an interesting sort of decision. And, you know, as I said, we, you've read as much as I have about these things. It's, we, we all have it in our own ways as well, don't we? We're all guilty of it in certain shapes and forms as well. Absolutely. But, but people like to be able to explain the anomaly and gender is a good way to do that, I think. But on that front, I mean, I still have a managing director role in a fairly large bank. I wouldn't have got there if I couldn't be assertive and, and employ all of the traits that people would say are very, very masculine. So I think, Again, it's really more about the skills that we use and our adaptability and when we choose to use them, the more senior we get, that then sort of helps us in that collaborative effort as well. Because you need to be able to flex around other people. You can't just have one way of doing things. Yes. Again, that's something else that it's a, a great quote. It's, uh, I think it's Charles Darwin that says, it's not survival of the fittest, it's the most flexible that will adapt their environment and change. And they're the ones that will survive and thrive. Yeah. And the flexibility is a incredibly important trait. Which is why I think sometimes over the years, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but over the years when we read, you know, elements of things that we should or shouldn't be able to do at work, I always think that they can be a bit misleading because the bottom line, as you say, is the more that you can flex around and collaborate and bring other people's strengths to the table, the better we all are, that basic teamwork. Whereas if we're going and thinking, oh, well, I, I should be able to do this because I'm, that's biased against me if I'm not, that's almost to me not helping. It's almost exacerbating the situation. It's not saying you can't be yourself because that's that's not what that's saying. It's just saying that none of us have that luxury of doing exactly what we want. We want to do it. Oh well, I wish. I mean, that would be a wonderful world. I, I could just go through and do whatever I want when I wish. But the adaptability point is so important. So, have you had an experience of that where work with people had to sort of attempt to guide them in the way that their flexibility, their teamwork, and their collaboration is really so important and to try and move them away from that more kind of thinking about themselves and their own their own approach and competition, that side of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's probably the touch point where people start to extend their career beyond, you know, individual contributor 
into a real leadership role and then leadership role from, you know, when you're leading a team or a department into then enterprise leadership, it, it comes into play again. And I think, I mean, I coach a lot around empathy and adaptability. And I think that they are the two key skills at the moment. When you look at the pace of change that we're seeing both outside of our institutions and in our institutions, if you cannot leverage those skills, you're going to end up stuck in some fairly destructive loops that will mean you are outdated fairly quickly. Whereas because we do so much work now to try and build cognitively diverse teams, if you're not willing to step back, take someone else's world vision and do it to your point, that bit more work around understanding perspective. And maybe you have to come to an agreement as a, a leadership team that may not have been your chosen direction, but you have to be able to come out of those conversations behind one direction and put the enterprise ahead of your own interests. The organizations that can do that will absolutely thrive as we're going into this even more accelerated pace of change when you look at a lot of the stuff happening around generative AI now. And the ones that cannot will unfortunately end up sort of dinosaurs and we'll all look back and use them as business case studies in the future, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, so we, we, I love looking back at those now. You read the companies that didn't go with the technology or didn't move ahead with the times. And and it used to be much more product-based, didn't it? It was the product they didn't keep up with. They didn't see the future of technology. They didn't see the future of, of people's buying patterns, for example. But I think you're right so much more now. It's based on actually your people and developing your people and how you work together. And that's going to have a huge impact on on businesses' ability to develop and expand and, and survive as well. When it comes to adaptability, there's one question that we hear quite a lot in the program that we run. And it's an interesting one because often women will say, and our program is only for women, so we don't get feedback from men. So just to put that out there, this is not, you know, that men don't necessarily say this either. But the women say, why is it always me that's got to be flexible? Why am I the only one? I feel like I'm the only one adapting around everybody. What would your response to that be? So I run a fairly extensive coaching program of like tens of thousands of people, and that's mixed gender. So I can assure you that men say the same thing as well. It's not a gender specific question. It's more around, not so much the why is it always me. I think sometimes people feel vulnerable if they're giving ground on something, if it feels like you're always the one having to flex. There is a very clear link in all of the research and even anecdotally between emotional resilience of an individual and then their willingness to adapt. So if you are emotionally resilient and you're quite comfortable in your core values and you know you're not breaching those and that you know you can choose between what really matters in terms of a battle and what doesn't, then actually you don't tend to feel quite so concerned about flexing all the time. So on the average day, probably out of 10 decision points or conflicts that I will be brought in to deal with, I'll probably flex somewhere between 70 and 80% but I'll know the 20% that I really can't negotiate too much on and I have to take a stand on. I think if you can take that approach every day, you will win an enormous amount of goodwill and adaptability in others. And you're also role modeling it as well. So it's not necessarily that people think you're being a pushover and especially if you build credibility over time, but there's no end game that really comes out positively if you're pushing really hard and competing on every single decision to get your way. People will just tend to consider you very hard to deal with at that point in time. Whereas if you can be empathetic, pick your battles, then actually you'll be far more effective. But if people are feeling, why is it always me? It could actually be part of either a toxic environment, which is something to be cognizant of. It's not always the individual. It might actually be that other people are pushing their agendas far too much, 
or it might be to do with that emotional resilience and feeling like, well, if I give on this one, will I always be expected to give? So it, it could be a combination of those two or one or the other, I feel. Yeah, and I like that one. Well, the toxic environment, you know, there's not a huge amount one individual can can do about that in, in their work in their day-to-day work. However, I do like the other point that you made. And I think it's it's almost like know which ones are deal breakers for you that you're not willing to compromise on and know that standing your ground on those occasions are important actually. Important for your own I mean, you've said as well the word well being, important for your own well being, because knowing that, you know, that's that's where it goes beyond that's my boundary, that's where I have to say no. But I also like your, I think you said 70 to 80% of the time that you flex. And I like that as well, because that kind of, you know, that kicks into Pareto's law, isn't it? The 80-20, which gets talked about an awful lot. And it's funny, it's talked about in a certain circumstance, isn't it? But you can definitely use that in so many different parts of your life, I think, as well. And I like that idea of it, of the 80-20 thing, thinking about that when you're going in thinking, okay, is this situation landing in my 20% box or my 80% box? And therefore, which one do I do? Because also, I like the way you as well as pushover, because then you think to yourself, I'm flexing, adapting, but then, and it's tiring as well. It's tiring to do that. And it's tiring to also have to think what's best for other people and what's best for the business and therefore not. So it's really about knowing your own, your own boundaries, where your own deal breakers are, isn't it? Absolutely. I, mean, I think it's core values, purpose and boundaries. And those are like the, the trio combo that will always set you up for success. And once you genuinely know those, a lot of it, your gut's going to tell you straight away anyway. So you're right. There is the weighing up of all the cognitive load around what about the outcome for this stakeholder group, this stakeholder group, this stakeholder group. But if it's something that's actually going to, and especially if we go back to the toxic environment scenario, if it's something that literally breaches your core values, your gut will tell you immediately that this is an area that you can't, can't necessarily flex on. And I think it's just important to remember that like literally every single interaction we have, whether it's at work or at home, is a negotiation. And once you step back and treat it as a negotiation, it becomes much less personal. So it doesn't necessarily feel quite so like, why is it always me? You're just picking which negotiations you really need to push your point on and, and what you need to get out of each interaction and not consider it as this is a one-off either because it's all about relationship. If you're giving one day in the relationship and you're flexing, then another day you can guarantee you're going to need a favor or you're going to need someone to flex to accommodate your need as well. So I think it's also about not, you know, pigeonholing each interaction and considering it as part of a wider long-term negotiation. It's a, then it's pick your battles. I, I remember that years back, actually, a former boss of mine, a situation we were in, he did say to the group, you know, fight the battle, don't win the war. <laughs> which which we clearly weren't fighting the battle. We were all trying to win the war. And I think, yeah, you do. You can augment things in your own mind and, and make them bigger. And as you say, take it one step at a time, one battle at a time. And don't don't connect them because they're not necessarily connecting somebody else's mind. The minute you connect them, you've augmented it and you've raised it to something much bigger than it needs to be. So what would your thoughts be saved at that, that very scenario where you have flex for something? And then the next day, another separate issue comes up with the same individual and you actually do want them to do you a favor here. And that's a very collaborative way of working, isn't it? That exchange of favors, that that constant back and forth. Because that's what any relationship is, isn't it? It's a back and forth. It's a two-way. So if you're in a situation where you are concerned, you're not sure how to approach it, what tips would you have? to say, here's here's how you can approach that scenario where you've given the day before being flexible. This is something that's really important to you. 
it is something, you know, connected with your core values. It is a deal breaker for you. So how do you push back? How do you sort of instill that boundary there? So as I say, I mean, I think one of the things, in addition to being collaborative, people would associate with me is being assertive. Because even on the day before when I'm conceding something, I make it quite clear I'm conceding. It's not like I'm going to let someone just feel they've got one over on me. So I think it's about having that kind of level set on the relationship of saying quite explicitly, I can see this is very important to you. I suggest we take this pass because, you know, it isn't as critical and I can see an outcome and I think we agree this way forward. But then the next day in the next interaction, then I'll be very open and honest about, well, actually, I feel much more strongly about this and this is why. And I will explain in a very kind of human and vulnerable way but I don't think that reduces any of the assertiveness around it because people know to take you at face value. So it's a lot about trust in that relationship and then holding your ground. And if you genuinely feel it's an impasse, then I'm never afraid to walk away and say, right, well, we need to regroup, but I'm not actually going to be able to back down on this point. I feel genuinely very strongly about it. And as you know, I'm very willing to concede on other areas where I don't think it's critical, but for X or Y or Z reason, I really do think this is the right approach for us to take together. And I think that's probably something which brings us full circle back to the the sibling piece is learning that it is always an ongoing relationship. And obviously you're stuck with your family and I'm sure they've, they've known that all the time. About being stuck, with stuck. <laughs> you are like literally every day growing up together to your point. A lot of people are focused on winning the war. But that's an ongoing war for, you know, hopefully 60, 70, 80 years when you're talking about your siblings. So I think I've learned that over time in that, you know, there's no, it actually takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and open and candid. But if you do it and you assert your boundaries, to use your word, people know when not to cross them. But it can be a scary thing to start doing first up. So I think it's something to start if you're experimenting with it, start small. Don't go too personal and then build your confidence doing it. Build your style doing it as well in terms of communication. I I like that, the start small, because one of my favorite phrases is small hinges swing big doors. And it's just those small little things that you do that actually have a much more powerful impact than we realize. And so just testing it out, testing out with somebody as well, who is somebody you, you have a higher trust level with as well, or perhaps somebody who might feel that they can give you a bit of feedback and then you can sort of share. But I love the point that you mentioned, though, that when you are conceding, let the person know you are conceding and explain to them why you are doing it. Because if we don't pre-frame it, then that person doesn't know. I think often we forget other people are not mind readers. We think they know our motivations. They think we know they know why we are doing something and they can't. How can they be? I mean, I even say that to you know, my, my two children, my daughter's now 23, my son's 20. And I said to them, you didn't come with a book. <laughs> I don't know how you work. It wasn't like this like little guide, you know, you have to explain to me what it is that you want. I'm not going to instinctively know what it is if you don't share it with me. And I think it's so important to have that when you are conceding, because it's a positive way to have the conversation, isn't it? It's a positive way. Because the hard conversation is the one where you're trying to put the boundary up. That's the harder one when you're trying to push back. But actually being positive and informing somebody when you're saying, okay, you know, you clearly have a strong steer or a strong view in this. I'm happy to follow your lead in this one. And then the next day it's like, okay, actually I do. And the word you used, it was interesting. You said, I feel strongly. And it's, we refer to this as the F word of feel, because again, it's one that in the work environment, 
women can find themselves stereotyped for it and then be told, oh, well, you're being emotional. Well, 90% of human reaction is emotional regardless of your gender, regardless of where you come from, regardless of how tall or small you are, regardless of where you live, it doesn't matter. 90% of all human reaction is emotional. So it's not that women are emotional. We are as human beings emotional. So what are your thoughts about using the F word? Are you saying feel? I say it all the time. Like there's probably not a meeting that goes past where I don't say feel, whether it's about me or whether it's about observing someone else's reaction. Because quite often I will also say, I can see that you're feeling really frustrated about this, or I can, you know, your frustration is palpable. I can see that there's a lot of emotion around this. And quite often that will be to a man and it can be quite disarming because they're not used to having their feelings acknowledged. But it, it means that if people start to talk about the emotion that they are feeling as a result of a situation, it takes us away from a very unconstructive debate, which is usually this is right or this is wrong because we deal in gray, certainly in my world. So oh, yes, completely. Yeah. But people, yeah. people just go, I don't agree with this. This is wrong. It becomes very hard to have the discussion around it. My question for that would be then, well, what makes you feel this is the right or the wrong course of action? And how can we come to, you know, something that feels right or wrong collectively for all of us or the outcome we're trying to get to? So I use the, the F word all the time. Um, I've never been accused of being emotional. If anything, quite often I'm accused of coming across as a bit of a robot, but that's because I spend a lot of time observing on calls. So I don't feel the need to be heard unless it's important and then, or unless I'm specifically asked. So quite often I get the complete opposite feedback, under emotional, but I talk about emotion a lot. And I ask people to talk about their emotion about a situation a lot as well. That's so interesting because I've just had a flashback. As you know, my background is banking and I was in banking for almost 20 years. And again, one of my bosses turned around one day and said to me about, you know, something had happened. He said, oh, it's unlike you, 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 you're getting a bit, I'm seeing a bit of emotion from you. And I, my answer was, I have two children. I thought it was a stupid answer at the time. I think about it. But I was like, I have two children. You know, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm at work at the moment. This is a different, you know, my emotions were much more in check. But I think like you, that's me as a, as a person. They don't, they're, they're not on the surface. My only issue is my facial expressions. They, they're my giveaway. I could never play poker. <laughs> I'll remember that in the future when I need to yes. get money. <laughs> exactly. Never, never put me at poker because my face, I've never been able to hide. I probably have so many tells. And so my facial expressions, that was always my thing. I had to think about it, think, well, gosh, better not sort of raise eyebrows or do anything because then people read into it, obviously, and I can read the wrong way as well as anything else. But I like the point that you made. And, and I think that's a really powerful point that we, you, you use the F word <laughs> two ways. You use it to describe yourself, but you also use it to ask other people and say, I sense you're feeling frustrated. And I think that's a really, really powerful way to use that word, because it goes back to the point that I'm saying there, we are human beings. Our, we react because we're human. We don't react because we're an agenda. We react because we're humans. And that's how we, we all behave with, you know, that we see, well, not the 90% of us behave. To think that is not the how it works, I think is, is not helpful in the work environment at all. Well, none of us check our emotions at the door as we're clocking in in the morning, right? We all come into work having had either a good morning, a bad morning, a good night's sleep, a bad night's sleep, something's happened on the school run, whatever it may be. 
Yeah, the train's been delayed. You've know, <laughs> been stuck in a hot carriage for 10 minutes. And yes. the train's definitely been delayed or someone's on strike at the minute, right? So it's, you don't get to just switch that off and go, well, no, now I'm going to go and be an Uber professional for the next eight hours and then I can have some feelings again after work. And I think that's actually the way people used to operate, but maybe 50 years ago. And if you look at the mental health crises over the years, especially for men, actually, I agree. There's a societal expectation. Yeah, there's a societal expectation that men did not express emotion. And you see that still in many cultures, especially here in Asia, in the workplace. And I think it's very unhealthy. So I, I do try and actively combat it because I would rather recognize that someone is passionate about something. You would always rather have someone at work who is passionate about something, even if that means that they then flare up in a debate on X or Y or Z. It's then just acknowledging that and, and hopefully diffusing it so people feel more open to collaboration versus just trying to get their own way and go through every barrier they have to to get it. You're absolutely right about that. We, we only have reaction to things where we care because when we don't care, we don't react. And so you want people caring. You want people caring about their career, their team, their job, their organisation. You want that. That's a positive emotion. That's a very positive emotion to have. And so, yeah, you don't, Quashing that is not is not a great long term strategy either because you're not getting the best of everybody. And then going back to that point we talked about earlier, people then aren't being themselves either, are they? If they're not able to express themselves, they're not being themselves. Much better to train people to manage conflict properly in a workplace rather than avoid it. And again, that comes back to the adaptability and the empathy piece. Is you can only manage conflict when you face into seeing someone else's view, and and you're willing to actually flex or know when to stand your ground as well. Well, that is a fantastic comment to, to finish with. Thank you so much. We always ask our guests to share a final thought, some quote, inspirational quote that they like, that they use. It's got a lot of meaning for them. I know you have one for us today, Liz. To please do share your final thought. I do have one, but to my shame, I don't know where it originates from because if you Google it, it's been credited to many, many people. But I originally heard it from my yoga instructor and I use it every morning as kind of my mantra, my meditation. And it's very simply... Expect nothing, accept everything. That's it. That is fantastic. I love that. Thank you so much, Liz, for your time today. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Now go find your epic. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to learn more about any of the tools and strategies discussed, please do reach out to us on LinkedIn or contact us via the website on team at elevatetalent.co.uk. Now go find your epic. Music